Hello, this is Julie Megler, and you're listening to Entheo Nation with Lorna Liana. Welcome to Entheo Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. Hello, visionary citizens of Entheo Nation. This is Lorna Liana here, and we are diving more deeply into the topic of entheogenic integration with Julie Megler, who is also a staff member of the San Francisco nonprofit organization, Erie, Entheogenic Research, Integration, and Education. We had the founder and executive director of Erie, Larry Norris, on our last episode, which you can check out at entheonation.com slash nine. As ayahuasca use is increasing in popularity in the West, we are seeing the emergence of formal networks of medical professionals, psychiatrists, and therapists who specialize in supporting the integration of entheogenic experiences. This is especially needed because there are increasing numbers of Westerners flocking to the Amazon in search of their miracle ayahuasca cure for a variety of ailments, from drug addiction, depression, to diabetes and cancer, in addition to spiritual seekers looking for truth. However, sometimes the ayahuasca experience they were hoping for ends up turning out to be a very different experience, and the return to the real world can be discombobulating. Rather than feeling empowered from their experience, some people return home feeling depleted, drained, fearful, panicked, mentally imbalanced, and may report residual non-ordinary experiences such as unwanted spirit visitations and voices. The ayahuasca experience can also bring emotional traumas to the surface, and processing these traumas without support may feel overwhelming. But avenues for support are limited. Imagine trying to seek the help of a conventional psychiatrist, telling that person that you drank a visionary medicine that is considered to be a Schedule I drug in the United States, and complaining that an entity followed you back from the jungle and has taken up residence in your bedroom. You will most likely be admonished for taking illegal hallucinogens, diagnosed as psychotic, and prescribed legal antipsychosis meds. Now that doesn't sound too helpful, does it? Julie Megler shares her experience with entheogenic integration and her recommended tools for navigating the visionary state. Resources, tools, and people mentioned in the episode can be found in the show notes at entheonation.com slash 10. Hello, visionary people of Entheo Nation. This is Lorna Liana, and I'm here today with Julie Megler, who is a board-certified family medicine and psychiatric nurse practitioner. She's in private practice in the San Francisco Bay Area, offering mental health services and integration of non-ordinary states of consciousness. Julie has spoken at a variety of conferences, including Psychedelic Science 2013, and co-authored book chapters on the topic of the therapeutic uses of entheogens. So Julie is joining us today to speak about the importance of integration 
after your entheogenic journeys and, you know, some of the challenges that people uh, can come up with when they are uh, experiencing entheogens and then going back into the, their daily, daily lives in the quote unquote real world. So thank you so much, Julie, for joining us today. I'd oh. love for you to share with us who you are, what you do, and how you were able to carve out such a unique profession for yourself that involves the integration of non-ordinary states of consciousness. Oh, wow. Yeah. So let's see here, where to begin. <laughs> so my name is Julie, as you mentioned, and I'm a nurse practitioner. I mostly work in mental health right now, although I do hold my license both in family practice and psychiatry. And essentially, I first started off working in an emergency room after I finished grad school. And I really saw the gap in medicine between the mind and body. It's like totally separated into psychiatry and medicine and the two don't overlap each other. So I went back for the psychiatry degree and at the same time kind of came across maps and had read a article about how to become a psychedelic researcher. And the thing that they said was, number one, get your license. So I got my license and got some experience in the ER, got the experience in psychiatry and really um, wanted to weave these two worlds together. So wait, so question for you, you can get a license as a psychedelic researcher? No, 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 not a license as a psychedelic <laughs> researcher, but it was kind of like MAPS had put in one of their bulletins, uh, like a list of things to do uh-huh. so that like what would legitimize yourself. And if you wanted to get into this field, how to get involved essentially. And so they were like, the first thing to do is get a, get, get, credentialed, like finish your schooling so that when you are wanting to enter this field, people will respect your opinion and what you're saying about the research rather than you just being some random person who's talking about entheogens. You're somebody who's obviously licensed and well-educated and is really looking at the pros and cons um, and looking at the research and the facts. So what licenses are available? Are we talking about clinical licenses or are there licenses available to you know non-medical um, personnel? Yeah. So for me, I pursued the clinical license route. So I have my nurse practitioner license, but I think there's also space for the non-clinical route, which I think is really important to emphasize because right now, a lot of the research in the movement is really focusing on how can this be used to treat illness or some sort of pathology like PTSD. And the fact of the matter is, is that there is a lot of, as Bob Jesse would say, healthy normals who also want to be exploring their consciousness. So it shouldn't just be about the pathologizing and the clinical side, but then also just for the sake of exploration and lifestyle changes and whatever it may be. So I think in addition to the clinical route, getting something like a PhD and being affiliated with a university can also be really helpful. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So you went ahead and got your license and then what happened? So I got my license and then after working in the ER, I moved out to San Francisco with the intention of knowing that in Detroit, there probably wasn't going to be a whole lot of opportunity. So, but in the Bay Area, there was a lot going on. So I moved out here about three years ago and got the psychiatry portion of my license at UCSF. Um, And then went to psychedelic science, but that was 2011 and didn't know anybody and kind of just slowly from there started to meet people and get involved in the community. And then the next thing I knew, like a year and a half later, I 
happened to be invited to speak at the conference um, because I was really at the time interested in how ayahuasca could be used to help with post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. Okay. That, that's really interesting. And so what have you discovered around the use of ayahuasca and post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, essentially, uh, in the articles that I wrote, I speak a lot about how what, one of the things that gets disrupted in PTSD is memory formation. So the short-term memory, the part of your brain that sees or senses that there could be a danger in the environment, never gets associated with the meaning. So like a long-term memory of, oh, that feels like a threat, but that's actually not going to kill me, never happens. So they're stuck in the short-term memory of that's a threat. Oh dear, I have to, like, my life is on the line right now. So people are constantly in this perpetual fear state. And that ayahuasca helps activate the emotional centers in our brain so that you can take some of that unconscious material and put meaning to it and so that that long-term memory can eventually be be made. It's also very similar to a well-known form of therapy for PTSD, which is exposure therapy, where people are kind of slowly like given the stimulus so that they can start to see that it no longer is a threat to them. And so it also comes along with some of the same risks that exposure therapy can in terms of re-traumatization. So it can be a delicate matter, and it really depends on where people are and how extreme their symptoms are and whether or not something like ayahuasca would be appropriate versus starting off with something like MDMA therapy. Hmm, interesting. Great. So you presented at this conference and then you're, you know, currently in a role where you work with people to mm-hmm. help integrate non-ordinary states of consciousness. How did that come about? And, you know, what kind of, um, uh, you know, who comes to you and what kind of experiences have they typically had? Yeah. So how I got there, um, I got to this role very much by having to work through my own integration experience. I had a really intense experience about two years ago, um, just before the psychedelic science conference. And it was working with a pretty challenging plant known as Toei. It was an mm. often added admixture to the brew of ayahuasca. And um, it's also it was, known as Detura, right? Correct. Uh-huh. I'm not okay. sure if it's Brugmansia or Detura, and oh, I've read okay. different literature, but they're in the same family. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's used to bring out visions in the ayahuasca brew, but it's also a very potent plant. It works for an extremely long period of time. Um, Airwood has it listed actually under as a deliriant, not even as a psychedelic. And it was a very challenging experience that was very confusing. And it wasn't necessarily just the experience itself. But a week later, when I was home in the U.S., I was very confused. All of a sudden, I felt like I'd had an experience. I'd been introduced to realms that I had no context of understanding for. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have uh, the community of people to kind of help me through that experience. Mm-hmm. And I was, had been in San Francisco for just under a year at that point in time. And I had friends that were doing entheogenic work, but there's a different way to, you're exposed to different realms of different sorts of entheogens. And this had definitely shot me into a realm that was much deeper than anything I had experienced before or any of my friends or peers had experienced before. So it was mm-hmm. slow. Go ahead. Can you describe some of these realms? Um, hmm. You know, I think when you're being exposed to the spirit realm, you realize that there might be forces that are beyond your 
understanding or control. Mm -hmm. It's very non-ordinary. It's not something that's tangible or things that you can put your hand on that you see living day to day. Um, and, and so then of course, on top of that, being a nurse practitioner and working in a very Western scientific model, which has no capacity or space for entities that may be living and existing in other realms without it being considered delusional. Mm. (laughs) Um, I was also very conflicted and confused because obviously I knew that it wasn't delusional, but I'd known that I'd had a deep experience that had exposed me to things that I just didn't quite understand. When you're in these realms, did you feel safe? Did you feel a, a presence of the spirit of the of the Toei? Or did you feel adrift and having to navigate on your own? I would say I felt, I definitely felt a strong presence of the plant teachers. So I very strongly felt ayahuasca and Toei. And that was actually the evening where I learned about um, tobacco, mapacho, and mm-hmm. its use as an ally. But it I was ill-equipped. I was so young in my plan experience. I didn't really know how to use them. So there were definitely times as the hours went on, because it was a very long journey. It was about 18 hours that I was exhausted and didn't have the focus and didn't really know how to access them. So I did start to feel kind of alone and ill-equipped to be in that realm. And then time post that, that seemed to be a reoccurring theme of all of a sudden feeling like, oh, wow, I'm in this space, but I don't actually have the resources to feel supported in this space when I'm journeying there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so then what happened? You were uh, working through this integration experience mm-hmm. yourself. And did you connect with the community of people in the Bay Area to help you? I did. And so I definitely discovered and learned a lot of great resources in the Bay Area. Um, I was lucky enough to find a a therapist who's doing entheogenic work. Actually, two of them kind of held different sides of it, which was really helpful and useful, as well as getting affiliated with Erie and getting to know those individuals in the community. And then at the end of the day, my partner, Larry, who's um, one of the co-founders of Erie, was a huge piece of my integration process. So uh, tell us what Erie is again. Oh, so ERI stands for Entheogenic Research Integration and Education. It's a nonprofit organization based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. So they hold uh, probably about at least once a month to twice a month a series of lectures and gatherings for people to come together and learn more about these realms, meet people. They're also doing peer integration circles as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So now, so you then started to get more experience in integration and doing and and holding space for integration for other people through this work with Erie. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Through the work with Erie and my own private practice as well. So yeah, you know, through my experience, I just really learned the, the need for community and support. You know, we're there's a lot of exploration. There's a lot of emotional content and material that comes up for us. So, you know, I always tell my clients that the five important things to being in balance health-wise is mind, body, spirit, community, and environment. So what could I do to help people support those five aspects um, and the, the importance that community really plays in that role? And so by wanting to be a resource for others in the, re- in the same way that I was able to find resources to help self- support myself through my integration process. Mm-hmm. 
Love this episode? You can receive the transcript for free by simply texting Entheonation, that's E N T H E O N A T I O N, to the number 44222. All you need to do is to reply to the SMS message with your best email address, and we'll send you the transcript and our guide to navigating visionary states for free as a VIP citizen of Entheonation. So the kind of people that come to you for support,、um, what、uh, are they typically going through, and how do you help them? Yeah, so I wouldn't say all of my clients are having entheogenic experiences. Probably a small portion of them, maybe twenty five percent of them. But the other things that my entheogenic experiences really taught me was it really teaches you how to sit with your own discomfort. Right and the challenging things. So, a lot of times these are people who are having a lot of anxiety or depression, and they're parts of themselves that they've been afraid to take a look at or face. Whether or not it was an old memory from childhood, a traumatic event, a bad relationship, attachment issues. So you know maybe the parents being not there for them in the ways that they needed as a child.、Um, Which shows up later in life in your relationships as an adult, and then I also work with people who are working with entheogens as well. So, and when I'm working with them, it's much more structured around the entheogenic work. So, going through preparation and what sort of th- setting intentions, and then after after they have their experiences, coming back to me, and then us kind of discussing the intention and how the themes that came up in their journeys may have related, and then kind of developing a model for okay, so. What practices do I need to develop in my life so that the insights that I got from that experience I can actually apply to my day to day life and my continued growth and transformation?、Mm, interesting. The people that come to you for you know support with entheogenic experiences、mm-hmm. um, are they、um, working with a variety of different entheogens or primarily with、um, certain ones like ayahuasca or you know San Pedro, for example? Yeah, I would say in the Bay Area, what I see mostly、um, people working with ayahuasca and mushrooms and some LSD and MDMA. But I'd say the majority of the works are on ayahuasca and mushrooms.、Hmm, that's interesting. And, and why do you think they're coming to you、um, after those,、uh, you know, experiences with these two、uh, plants?、Hmm. You know, I think that. I mean, ayahuasca is a very potent entheogen, so I think her more so than some of the other plants really can kind of, again, just as I had experienced,、uh, introduce people to realms they didn't previously have a context for, or bring up even more content in kind of a much more intense way than some of the other entheogens can, and. And then there's also the with the plants and the fungi. I find that there's much more of a plant teacher quality. So there's this feeling of an entity, a spirit behind the plant, versus things like MDMA and LSD and more of the chemical compounds、um, don't have as strong of a teacher presence.、Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why、um, people for those substances. However, I do want to put in a little bit of a disclaimer because a friend of mine recently pointed out to me is is it that the chemical compounds don't have a teacher behind them, or is it because they don't have as much history behind them? They're new as within the last seventy years or so. So maybe the qualities of the teacher behind them haven't had the time to 
evolve and be discovered versus plants that have been around for thousands of years, which I, I appreciated the idea of there actually being an entity behind even uh, some of the chemical compounds. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. I can say that personally, I've never experienced um, any feeling of there being a teaching or guiding entity around chemical compounds mm-hmm. myself. I um I don't know, but I, I mean, you know, certainly in the shamanic world, because in, in that, you know, paradigm, um, living creatures, you know, plants and animals um, all, you know, have um, seem to have some type of like wisdom. And, you know, the indigenous people, when they mm-hmm. um, interact with uh, plants and animals, they often have there is some type of exchange of information. And sometimes it's an exchange of information whereby the plant or the animal is teaching the human something. Mm-hmm. So that goes back a long, you know, like uh, centuries, uh, you know, millennia. Um, so that, that's a really interesting way of looking at that. You know, what do you think about some of the phenomena that's happening um, that a number of us in the ayahuasca um, communities have um noticed, which is, you know, there seems to be a lot of, a lot more groups that are springing up um, that, you know, involve, you know, either shamans, um, gosh, you know, my my friend Robert Tyndall, who's the author of uh, uh, The Jaguar That Roams the Mind and Shamanic Mm -hmm. Odyssey, refers to them as drive-by shamans. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Or, you know, even people, you know, that are like, you know, Western ayahuasqueros that are going down to, you know, Peru and training for some time. Um, and then coming back and then opening up their own, you know, circles. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, you know, the reason why you might be uh, receiving a number of people, you know, for your services is because those those ceremonies are not being held in a solid enough way for those individuals to feel like they're getting the support from the communities Mm -hmm. around those uh, particular servers? Yeah, I I think there's two ways that I look at it. Um, I would definitely say that there are a lot of groups coming up. Um, I don't have any objections to Western people getting trained because I've come across a few that really hold a really beautiful and solid container. Mm-hmm. It's more of um, how well of a container they're holding. Mm-hmm. And then there's also this this cultural context of you know, traditionally, the communities didn't need to, the anthropogenic communities didn't necessarily need to focus on integration because integration was inherently part of the culture. Mm-hmm. It was part of the day-to-day life. It was part of your family network. So we're bringing entheogenic use into a culture that doesn't have that. So we need to create that because now there's a demand. There's more people out there who are thirsting for these experiences who are going out and they're looking for them. And so perhaps the people that are holding the circles are coming from a background of communities that already have an integration in place. So they're not necessarily aware of the need here mm-hmm. for that. And as well as, you know, and to some degrees, there is a division of labor and the fact that there's so much that the shaman can do or the ayahuasquero can do. And then there's other things that people need to step into a role for, because it's kind of like, you know, as a nurse practitioner, I can't be specialized in everything. You know, I need to have my focal areas and I need to know my strong points. So what are my strong points? And so I don't want to say that it's any one thing. I think all those aspects play into why there's a demand right now. Um, but I will say that the demand is there and the need to hold hold a container that may not have been there or create a 
cultural context that doesn't exist within our cultures. Definitely what my big drive has been is also one of the big drives for Erie and how Erie got founded. Mm-hmm. So what are some useful tools that you recommend to help uh, so that folks can uh, rely on to you know help navigate altered states? I would say the number one tool that I've learned is really listening to your intuition, not ignoring it. Um, my biggest learning curve is, is that when my intuition would speak up to me, I would second guess it. I would kind of be like, oh, you're overreacting or no, I don't trust it. Um, and in the end of the day, it was when I ignored my intuition, when I would get myself into trouble. Like, for instance, I'll give the example of this, my toe experience. My intuition told me not to drink a third time. <laughs> and it was offered to me because I naively had asked it for like a while earlier, asked for it. And now when I look back, it was like, I ignore my intuition. And that was a really hard lesson of getting to learn about the importance of intuition, but it's there. It's, it's a mode of our body communicating to us that we're used to, we're not as used to being sensitive to. So really kind of developing that. The other thing I would recommend is really getting to know your allies and how to use them in those spaces um, and developing a relationship with them. And I don't know if I can really specify what or how an ally is because everybody's allies is a unique relationship that they develop themselves. So it could be a plant ally, as I mentioned Mapacho earlier today. For some people, they have spirit animals, this particular animal that they can connect with in that space that may help bring in some wisdom or assistance for you when you're navigating these realms. Um, and then the, the last one I would say is present moment awareness. The monkey mind can really take you all over the place. And that, again, relating back to that Toei experience is one of the things that really was challenging for me was that as the evening and morning drew on, I was exhausted and my mind was just everywhere. And, mm-hmm. and that was working against me mm-hmm. versus really learning how to come back to my center and just kind of let any thoughts drift in and out and, you know, really working in deep meditation. And again, present moment awareness has also been one of the greatest tools that I've learned to develop since that experience, because I realized how, how crucial it can be and how important that is in day to day life as well. Mm, wow. Yeah, those are really, you know, those are three really great pieces of advice. Thank you. Mm. So we're coming about to the end of our um, uh, interview time. And I'd love to leave you with a couple of my favorite questions. So mm-hmm. uh, first is, uh, what was the most far out visionary experience that you've had? And what did you learn from it? Mm. You know, going back to that toy experience, that was definitely the most far out visionary experience I ever had. I um you know, it's interesting for me. I've accessed that same space a few times since, but I feel like when I'm working in really deep entheogenic spaces, the beginning of it is like super intense and very visual and stuff coming up, like things that you need to process. And then all of a sudden I get like popped up into this higher realm and it's all of a sudden it's very still and it goes on for infinity in every direction up, down, 360 degrees around you. And that can be a really terrifying place because there's a world of opportunity to explore there and really sit with the plant teachers and see what they have to show you. But it's also terrifying because 
it, you don't know what the realm of possibility is. So there's a fear, there's an inherent, I think, human fear that comes up with not understanding the environment. Um, so for me, in that Toei experience, it, it was really beautiful because I got to actually like just explore it. I called it mental gymnastics. I felt like I got to do backflips and fly around and just play in it. It was like I had done all this work earlier in the journey. And then I got to get into this space where I could like have recess. I could just run around and play like a little kid. Um, and so I keep on going occasionally, probably, I don't know, 10 or so times since then have gotten the opportunity to enter that realm again. And I'm still getting to know it and familiarize myself with it and not be scared of it when I get to access it. And I'm really excited to keep on exploring it because I think that there's, you know, quite the world to be explored out there. Um, Once I kind of learn how to get my anchor and not feel so, I'm refer to it as feeling like I'm traveling without gravity, like where you're just kind of confused and you don't know which way's up. So kind of learning how to get oriented in that space so that I can use it more productively. Mm. Okay. Wow. So um, last question, mm-hmm. how have visionary states of consciousness helped you connect with your purpose and your true calling? Mm. You know, I think, again, it's all about, it's what you learn about yourself. And uh, the more, you can't necessarily bring to others what the work you haven't done yourself, right? So the visionary states have really, really shaped my clinical practice. Um, You know, they've taught me a lot about, like, again, as I mentioned earlier, sitting with my own discomfort and sitting with my own discomfort allows me to help assist others and learning how to sit in their discomfort, as well as me being able to tolerate sitting there with them, you know, to hold that for somebody. And it's also taught me a lot about empathy, because even though with my clients, I may not have had the same experiences they have, um, the visionary states have brought me through a series of tests and challenges. So I, I know, and I can relate what it's like to have that sort of struggle or what it's like to work through it. Um, so, you know, all the self-exploration and compassion and love and patience I've learned through myself with my visionary states, um, it ties into what I'm doing now because now I get to continue to do that work on my own for myself, but then also help others assist them in learning how to discover that for themselves. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. I'd love to ask how we can best stay in touch with you, Julie. Uh, the be- easiest way to get a hold of me is probably by email. My email is Julie Megler NP as in nurse practitioner at gmail.com. Thank you. You have a beautiful day now. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you know anyone who can benefit from this information, please do share the link to this episode, which can be found at entheonation.com slash 10. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd so appreciate it if you would take the time to rate and review the show. This increases our visibility in the iTunes marketplace and helps this information reach more people in the world who need it. If you would like to get the transcript of this episode and more consciousness-raising content delivered straight to your inbox, simply text Entheonation, that is E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. Simply reply to the SMS with your best email and never miss an episode. Now, please enjoy Ecstatic Grounding from the album Heart of the Shamans by Liquid Bloom. Thank you.
Thank you. 